The last great day of the feast, that was where it started back last week. If anyone thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. I, I'm going to set that setting here in a moment. But what we read in verse 53 is that everyone went to their own house. But then in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That but's kind of important because what that tells us is that everyone went home but Jesus. Because Jesus would tell us, by the way, in Luke 9, 58, and in, I think, Matthew eight twenty that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, and so that's where it goes. And then it says, now early in the morning. So Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And then the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to her, teacher, this woman was caught in, in, in adultery in the very act, literally, by the way, in the theft itself. Now, Moses in the law commanded that we should stone, so such, uh, that such should be stoned. What are you saying? Now, this they said, testing him, that they might have something to which, of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are the accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Will you pray with me, please? God, I pray that you would cause your word to just come so alive to us today. That we would so understand it, that we would so get it. That today in this room, no matter where we are, no matter where we've come from, whether this is the first time we've heard this story or whether at the point where we feel like we could recite it by rote, you have a word for each of us to speak into our lives. And only you, God, the ultimate and perfect multitasker, can take this scripture and minister to each of us right where we're at and take that need within us and just meet it right there. So I pray, God, that you would immerse me in your spirit and come upon me, that you would do through me what only you can do. And that you would give us ears to hear and hearts receptive. And God, today in this room, we would have so much fun in your word and that we would learn, we would genuinely learn not just to be informed, but to be transformed. So you know what to do here. So do it, please. Redeem every second we pray. Lord, if there be any who have yet to make that choice to say yes to you, let today be the day of their salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the final say. Now, 
In chapter 7, in our context, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, Shavuot, I'm sorry, of Sukkot. And it is the last of the three great feasts of the year. It is roughly September, October. It is, if you think about it, the driest time of the year. The summer sun has blanched out all of the, of the grass in the fields. And we are just now inches away from coming into the winter rains. And we pray. During that time, it's the longest feast, the other two being seven days, this one being eight. In those first seven days, there are sacred assemblies, there are feasts, they sacrifice bulls, 13, and then 12 the next, 11 the next, till the seventh day is seven. And then on the last day, on the eighth day, the day that they call today Simchat Torah, they actually sacrifice one bull, and they do this water libation ceremony. We are thirsty, we've fasted from water, the ground is thirsty, it's waiting for the rain. And we have two jars in front of us, because we see one that's covered in water, and one that's covered in wine. And the idea is simple, that that one represented the harvest, but you can't have the harvest without the rains. And for, even to this day, you just can't make it rain. You could pour things in the sky and force it, but if the clouds aren't there, they're just not there. And we lived that way. Every year we thanked God for the previous harvest because it was the last great harvest of the year. It was a great time to get married because everyone's off, uh, because we're done now. But then we pray for the next rains because without those rains, we don't have a harvest for the coming year. So it took great faith. But we sleep in these tabernacles, these booths. And we sleep in these booths because we are to be reminded of the time when God took Israel out of Egypt and we wandered for 40 years out of a lack of faith and the the lack of obedience that comes with a lack of faith. And we hungered for home. But it was a reminder of us of something beyond the moment. And then understand, if we're going to be honest, the only time we usually think of a life beyond this one is at a funeral. And God would rather it be a feast than a funeral. And once a year, for eight days, we are reminded that this dwelling we have, this body, is temporary. And someday we're going to cash it back in. And it really doesn't matter. Now look at it. It does say physical exercise is of some benefit. So look at it. If you're the kind that works out all the time and you take your vitamins and you do all of your things, you could still be healthy, but you're still going to die. Now I'm not here to kind of rain on your prey, but the idea is simple. If all we have is what we have in front of us, we're in trouble. But we try to live in a way that we can blind ourselves from what's beyond that. So what happens is as long as I can just think about the moment and consume myself in it, and if I if it gets quiet enough for me to think, I'll just slap on my headphones and I'll stop thinking again and give me another thing that I can binge on Netflix to where I don't have to think about something beyond my moment. Well, Jesus stands up in the midst of this while we're contemplating eternity for the first time in a year. And he says... Any of you here thirsty? It's a rhetorical question. Everyone there is thirsty. While this is happening, they're drawing water from the Gihon Spring down in the Pool of Siloam. And as they're coming up, they're singing the song, And what they're singing is from Isaiah, With joy I will draw water from the well of salvation. Because it's more than just water. The harvest God really wanted was a harvest of human beings of souls. And for that to happen, God would have to rain forth his grace and pour forth his spirit to do so. And at the end of that, after three different attempts to seize Jesus, it ends with everyone going home except Jesus. Again, it tells us, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And that is really a very important place. If we get the chance to go to Israel, it's one of my favorite spots, as long as we can get away from the guys trying to sell you their olive wood camels. Because so much happens there. 
A thousand years before Jesus, David fled from his murderous, usurping son, Absalom, over that hill, crying and barefoot. And the whole idea was that ultimately, that great descendant of David, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, would come back over that hill and reascend, if you will. And consider this. Daniel even gave us the day in Daniel 9. It was a Scotland Yard uh, agent, an investigator, a detective, who did the math in Daniel 9. And it came to the day that we would find in history to be the day that Jesus descends that same mount on what we call Palm Sunday. It was one of the things that brought Sir Richard Anderson to Christ in a very, sort of a very radical way. Now, hear me on this. It would be the place Jesus would descend on Palm Sunday. It would also be the place Jesus is arrested. It's the Mount of what? This is an easy question. It's right in front of you. It's the Mount of what? It's the Mount of Olives. What do you think grows on the Mount of Olives? Not a difficult question. Olives, right. Now, for what it's worth, there is at the bottom of a hill like this an olive press. The word for olive is the word semnas. The word for olive. Press, like to squeeze or crush, is the word gut, like gath. So when you have a place that is the press for the olives, it is called gethsemnas, or as we would say, gethsemane, if you're familiar with the place. Now, why would it be at the bottom of the hill? Duh, you just have a bunch of olives. Who wants to carry them uphill when you can go down to get them pressed? It's simple. Now, it would be there that Jesus would be arrested. It would also be there that Jesus, on the Mount of Olives, that Jesus teaches the end times, and it's there that Jesus actually ascends in the book of Acts chapter 1. All of that takes place on the same spot that Jesus goes. But for our particular purpose here, it's also the home of his good friend Lazarus, who we know from John 11, spoiler alert, Jesus will raise from the dead. It's Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and likely he probably goes and, if you will, crashes on their couch, so to speak. So Jesus has now gone... Well, everyone else goes to the comforts of their home and he has to go and then, if he will, spend the evening with his friend. And in verse 2, it tells us, and very early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. It's classic. He sits down, a teacher sits down, the people stand. Could you imagine that? That's traditionally the way it happens. The teachers sit because they're the one person least likely to fall asleep and everyone else stands because one of the reasons is, is that you... Not only take the information, but usually you're sent on a quest to do something about it. And to this day, if you go to Israel, you'll see kids rolling large logs up hills with sticks because this is some object lesson they're trying to learn. I think they're just trying to get the log up the hill. But what do I know? And Jesus gets there early, gets pole position. Now, if we were to look at the temple, inside the major courtroom area, courtyard area, there are four corners. In each of those corners, something is housed. There is salt in one, lepers in another. Women are able to congregate in the third, but in the fourth would be the congregation of teachers. And understand, it's fairly likely. It wasn't just sort of like Jesus set up, brought his little stand, if you will, and said, all right, everybody. There were probably several other teachers there too, because that was the place where people could go, in essence, and sort of propagate their particular agenda. Jesus happened to be one of those guys. He just happened to have a huge following in comparison. Now, needless to say, in this particular story, there's a woman that's going to be thrown at his feet that's clearly subject of some form of controversy. Jesus' conclusion at the end is light. Very fundamental, by the way, because Jesus has us, brought us from bread in chapter 6, if you think about it, to water in chapter 7, to now light in chapter 8. That's kind of where we go through all of this. 
And here now we read that Jesus is there. He's sitting down. He's teaching. He's got this crowd of people. He's been there early in the morning. And, and if you were me, it would be one of those few reasons I would want to get up early in the morning. I'm not one of those people who loves to do that. But uh, definitely of Jesus where they're teaching, I'm on my way. Now, it tells us it's the, that this was the next day. So that tells us the feast is over. Those who have come to the feast have now gone home. And what that usually means is pretty much now the Jerusalem residents are there. They're hanging out. Jesus is teaching them, but the Pharisees and the scribes, well, they have another agenda. And it tells us then that the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in their midst, literally flung her, it says, they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act, they're caught in adultery, the very act. Literally in the Greek there, it is, it's the theft itself. And it's considered thievery because when a woman or a man then goes and, and obviously has sexual relations with somebody outside of marriage, it's a theft of that intimacy between the husband and wife. Now, they're pulling this out, by the way, of two particular places, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. But please hear me in this. These guys were experts in the law, and they're trying to trap Jesus. That's the point here. And that's what it tells us. They did this. In other words, the girl was inconsequential. As far as they were concerned, they could give a rip about her. They didn't care about her. She was just a convenient way to try to bring Jesus down. And if you really walk with Christ, people will do this. You're aware of that. What I do love from this, well, there's a few things, but first, let me build this. In Deuteronomy 22, it tells us, by the way, that if a person is caught in the act, first of all, there's, there's several things you need to know. First of all, the, the eyewitnesses are the first to throw stones. Then it's the person offended. In other words, it would be the husband or the wife that had, been, that had suffered that lack of trust, the breach of trust. But it also tells us that there is no specific way to kill them unless they're the daughter of a priest or they're betrothed. Now, we don't have betrothal here. What we have is engagement. But engagement, if you will, is kind of like marriage light. You know, you kind of, you're almost married, but there's kind of a last second to bail out of it. And I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with this. But understand, in those days, when a person was betrothed, they were as good as married. There was, it was the beginning of a marriage process where the guy went and built a house for them, and she went to a season of beautification. The whole thing, the whole machine was kicked into motion. The penny drops, and the whole thing, they're as good as married. And what they say, according to the book of Deuteronomy 22, is that if this woman is betrothed but has not actually officially been married, she would be stoned publicly. Or if she was the priest, uh, priest's daughter, she would be stoned publicly. Now, the Jewish tradition that collects a few hundred years later in what's called the Talmud would actually say that if it was any other case, the person was strangled. Now, I don't know how that sounds merciful, but what do I know? But the point, of course, was the preventative medicine of if you do something like that publicly, the next person says, okay, maybe not. Now, this is one of the things I learned about one of the lowest places in the world for adultery, which happens to be, oddly enough, Sicily. Now, one of the reasons, and I'm like, wow, as I started to look, and I, I remember speaking to a friend of mine and saying, why is it Sicily seems to have such a low rate of adultery? And he says, because it's legal in Sicily, if you find your spouse with another person, to shoot them both. It's legal. Now, you say, well, that sounds pretty rough. You know, you find somebody you don't like, you're like tired of your marriage, and you throw them both in the bed, you shoot them up. Well, anyways, that's the conniver, and I'm not that person. But it is preventative. That's the point is. That's why people aren't doing it, because they know they get shot if that kind of thing happens. Now, the reason I say that is there is a mercy in preventative medicine. 
But it also tells us this, and it's fundamental in Leviticus 20 as well, that when someone is caught in the act, you don't just stone one of them or you don't just kill one of them. You kill them both because they're both guilty. And that immediately puts me in a question here. Well, where's the guy? That seems like an obvious question, isn't it? This girl was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act, in the very theft of it. She was caught in this act. Where's the guy? Obviously, the point is not justice here. That's the problem. But this girl is thrust before him. Now, let me ask you. Does she, according to the law, deserve to die? Well, according to this law, she does. Now, we don't know if she was set up. It certainly seems like a setup. But I have a real problem with the fact that only one of the two people are standing before them right now. But there is something important to recognize that John prefaced us with all the way back in the beginning of this book. What John taught us, by the way, is that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not just grace where you get gifts, but truth. And Jesus shows us something here that somehow two things that could seem opposite are not at all. Now, let's talk about this trap they've set. Here's the idea. And this is the part that ministers the most to me as a person who's seeking to represent Christ. Somewhere in a boardroom, these guys are conniving. They've been trying to kill him all the way back since Jesus raised the man who was lame back in John 5. And they're like, how do we catch this guy? Well, he has this following because he seems to be tender-hearted to the fallen. Now, we're not talking about a person who's outright full-blown rebellion, but we're talking about a person who's struggling in a sin. Jesus seems to be open to that. And it doesn't matter where you've come from, no matter what it is, how many abortions, no matter how many drunken parties, no matter what your record is, whatever it is, it's all behind you the moment you come to Christ because it gets washed away. So they know he's compassionate and that he loves people. So there's that. But on the other side of it, they also know he's not going to break scripture. Jesus himself said that he hasn't come to destroy scripture, but to fulfill it. The law and the prophets, the Torah and the Haftorah, he has come to fulfill it. There were there was all pointing to one conclusion and Jesus was going to be it. So you imagine them sitting down and going, okay now, how do we work this out? How do we get it so that somehow he's going to have to choose one side or the other. Because, like it or not, there's a law. Whether we like it or not, there's a law. And so on that, if we put somebody that's going to tug at the heart of the common people, and we force Jesus to choose a side. Now consider this. If Jesus chooses Moses' side, he could at that moment and say, Well, according to the law, she has to be killed. I kind of wonder, by the way, those of you familiar with Shakespeare's works, if the whole idea of strangling somebody that's caught in adultery was what led Shakespeare to write about Desdemona and Othello, because it's kind of the same story. But anyways, in that, although in his case it's all feigned, it's all fake, and he goes mad in the jealousy of it. But if we get him to side with Moses and Jesus goes, well, you're right, we're going to have to kill her. Well, there's two problems with it. Well, number one, all the people that see him as compassionate are going to see him go, whoa, that doesn't sound very compassionate. And he's going to lose the audience of those people. They're going to to bail on him. 
So I was like, whatever happened to the guy that hugs the fallen? And, you know, those pictures and the, I mean, that footsteps, you know, poem and the, he carried me and, you know, all that. Whatever happened to that guy? Now he's got to have this girl killed. That's rough. But there's also another side to that. Back in 7 AD, the guy before Pilate, well, a few guys before Pilate, but the guy that was the governor of Judah, Judea, was a guy named Caponius. He's an easy name for me to remember being born in Chicago because like Caponius is like, I remember that. And he, in 7 AD, removed the right of capital punishment for the Jew. So they have no legal right to kill anyone as far as Rome is concerned. So if Jesus were to say, you're right, we need to kill this gal, he's doing two things. One is, he's showing no compassion to the fallen girl, but he's also, in essence, becoming an enemy of Rome, because he's going, we need to kill this girl, but Rome won't let us. And you can imagine that the leaders would go to the Romans and say, hey, this guy who's trying to kill somebody in our square, in our temple, that's where it's going with this. So there's that side of it. But on the other side of it, if Jesus then goes and says, well, you know, you're right, but are you sorry, honey? Are you repentant? Well, let's just kind of, let's, let's be cool about it. Well, then Jesus goes against the law of Moses and he becomes the patron of all kinds of horrible things. And now he's a heretic and they want to kill him for that. So somewhere down the line, they think Jesus is pinned to the wall in a corner. And I love it when people do stuff like this because God always takes a corner and just makes it an avenue. But Jesus, first of all, he has a couple things he needs to do. And first of all, and there's wisdom in this, but let me ask you this before we even move. Do people know you that way? Do they know you as somebody that is unyielding to what Scripture says in regards to the fact that if it's the Bible, it's the Bible, I'm not bending on it. Do they know that you're someone like that? But do they also know that you love people? I mean, if someone were to try to trap you or try to trap me, could they have this kind of same scenario and think they could because they think somehow both of these things still exist in us? Because doesn't it seem weird to me? But it seems the church seems to be one or the other, doesn't it? On one side, it's sort of like, we're kind of Bible people, but it's like there's no love and there's no compassion and there's no concern for human beings. On the other side, there's the, well, let's give everyone a hug like we're Barney or something. But in that, there's no real care for Scripture. And it's like on this side, it's like doctors that are so concerned about medicine, but they don't care about patients. And on this side, they're so concerned about patients, they don't care about medicine. Neither place is somebody actually getting well. And I I have to pray for myself. God, let me be somebody that when they look at, they could think they could do this too. Because there's a human life in front of Jesus right there. But there's more than a human life. There's a group of accusers that are in the balance. And there is a flock of students that happen to be around Jesus at the same time. Consider the crowds we're talking here. And what Jesus is going to do there is going to send concentric circles through every one of those places and it's going to ripple through every one of them. I know that. I know that one stupid move could affect people that I haven't seen in 30 years because it's someone that would still try to stay attached to us through something on the websites or whatever the case would be. I I just... And I'm just a human being. I'm nothing like this amazing God in the flesh that we see here. And these guys are accusing God, trying to use God's law against God. Is that the weirdest thought? Because it's become all political now. Now, I also learned what to do when something like this happens. You know what Jesus has to do? He has to slow the pace. They've thrown this girl 
adrenaline and testosterone is flying everywhere. And this girl is freaking out. Let's just be honest. Wouldn't you be? You know, I mean, not only did they come with the girl, they came with stones because they're going to drop them in a minute here. So they came ready to kill her. And I have to imagine that their assumption would have to be that Jesus is going to have to side with Moses and they were going to kill this girl right there in the temple and then blame Jesus for it. I imagine that's the whole plan. And they are just revving to take that next step. You ever get ever, oh, I have to put this right to make sure that I'm not saying something wrong. You ever get into a conversation with someone and you know that it's hinging on an argument and two things always seem to appear. One is it tends to speed up and the other is it tends to get louder. Have you noticed that? I've seen people argue even though they both think the same thing. They both agree. They're just saying it in different ways. But they start to speed up and they start to get louder. And you know what happens when one person speeds up and gets louder? Well, it's like you and I are having a conversation and I say something and you take it wrong and then you, well, as you come back at it, which was, makes sense, but then you have to speed up faster than that to respond and then you have to get louder than that to overcome it and by the time we're done, it's like we're running and screaming. How does anything get solved at a moment like that? And in a moment that Jesus is in here, the running and screaming is happening. Except Jesus is not going to get caught in. You know what he does? He drops down and he writes in the sand. Well, he writes in the dust is what we read. There's a few reasons for it, but I'd like to consider the first. He's going to slow these boys down. Because when you're in that moment and your heart is racing and you are sweating and you're seeing red, sense doesn't make sense anymore. You're determined and it's kind of like you're just about to drop your head down and take those horns and go after the matador in front of you. That's just the way that works. The term stoop down that Jesus that, is, that tells us Jesus does is the same term that John the Baptist said in back chapter 1. He says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie that guy's sandals or untie them. And so Jesus, and imagine, they're screaming and yelling and there's a girl right here and she's cowering and she's Jesus, having all the power of eternity in your hands, would you for a moment, if nothing else, just freeze everyone? That's my first thought is, could you just like click something and just stop time? And everyone's like, and you're like, I'm going to go get a falafel. I'm going to go pray, take a nap. And I'm going to come back to this in a couple days and just let them stay there like that. That would be my first thought. But as he writes in the sand, or in the dust, I'm sorry, I can't help but think that there's a text in Jeremiah 17 that sticks out to me. Now, you probably, if you're the kind that reads commentaries, and I'm not a big commentary reader, one reason is because I get dizzied by them. It seems like everyone's so smart and they, they disagree so much on things and they're so smart and so godly. And I'm like, I'd rather actually make sure that the Lord's telling me what I hear first. 
And it's amazing how many books are written on what Jesus wrote in the sand or in the dust. And yet, the scripture purposely doesn't tell us. Now, if God is going to go out of his way not to tell us that, do you really think he's actually calling us to fill in that gap? Because it's amazing how many times God will tell us just one thing that's simple and for obedience, and we fill it in with this complicated thing on the other side of it, and we're like, well, no, I can't even do that simple thing because look at all this complicated stuff. And God's like, I never told you any of that. He said, Abraham, just follow me. Come, I'll show you the place when we get there. The rest of it, you're just going to have to follow me. Jesus did this to Philip, follow me. To the four fishermen, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Is that hard to get? You get that? What's your part? Follow me. The rest of it, I'll work it out. Don't worry. I love how simple he makes it. And it grieves me how complicated we can. Well, in this situation, Jesus writes in the sand. But in Jeremiah 17, hear this. And I believe it's verse 3. And it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Those who depart from me, God speaking, shall be written in the earth. I don't know if this is what Jesus is pulling from. I mean, I've heard people, you know, that have said, I know what he was writing in that, that down in that ground over there. He was writing the names of the girls they were with, like Jerisha, Chantilla. And I'm thinking, I guarantee you, these Jewish guys were not with a girl named Chantella. One thing is really clear, is that they're still screaming, they're still yelling, and he's kneeling down. And I think it's the most amazing thing at this moment, that God is kneeling down, because man is trying to use God's law against God here. Now, Moses commanded that she should be stoned. That's the law of Moses. What do you have to say? And they said this to test them, the word that's used to pierce through to see if it's genuine all the way through. Verse 7 says, when they continued asking him, they didn't stop. There are going to be times where you just can't put pause on it. And it's going to get ugly. And it seems like it's getting uglier. Finally, Jesus raises himself up. At the beginning of this text, it told us that Jesus was teaching and he was with people who were learning. And I want you to recognize what John is setting this whole thing up as the school is still in session. And here it is. All right. Here's my judgment. Go ahead. As long as you're innocent, go ahead. But... If you're innocent, you throw the first stone. Why is that an issue? Because I've learned you can take brilliant individuals and put them and turn them into a stupid crowd. Have you learned that? You take a lot of really bright people, but you shove them into a crowd, and crowds are just dumb. And mobs get this mindset. Last night on my way home from the Netherlands after our wedding there, I get on a train, and apparently there must have been a rugby match somewhere in the world. Well, somewhere that this train went. 
And one moment, it was silent as anything, and I'm there having a brief moment in the Garden of Eden with God. You know, it's just prayer, and it's like angels are singing quietly, and it's just piano music in the background, and ocean waves, and I'm there with my scriptures. And then it's like, And it's obviously, okay, well, we're done. We're done. We're done with Eden. And at that particular moment, I watched, and, and I think it was English. I'm pretty sure it was English. But there was, nobody was closing their mouth to speak any of this. Have you noticed that? It's like, they're like, oh, no, they're like, all right, man. <coughs> and they noticed at this particular moment, I'm the only guy in the carriage that they have now infested. And uh, as they come in, they're like, oh, I like this guy. I like this guy. I and I'm like, hey, how's it going? I'm going to preach Jesus to a bunch of drugs. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great story for church tomorrow. And uh, so I'm trying to start into conversation. And if you ever get those guys, they're wound up. Having two sentences in a conversation deserves a medal at a moment like that. Just like to thank everyone who made that possible. Because you're like, hey, all right, hey, where'd you come from? Oh, okay. Oh, 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 did you win? All right. It was great. Great. What do you guys do when you're not doing that? They're like, oh, we're bankers. Bankers. You're handling money. Oh, millions, millions of novices, and I can understand what they're saying. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So you guys are brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just not at the moment. Now, granted, we can agree that there were also some other ingredients added into it. But as a group, they were crazy. They were throwing things at each other. And at one point, they just all laid on top of each other in front of me. I was not going to be a part of that. One guy's like, oh, and he just threw himself face down on the ground. The next guy's like, oh, and he threw himself on. I'm like, and then one guy kind of looks at me. They're like, oh, coming on. I'm like, no, 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 you just, you're good. You're good the way you are. The whole, the whole reason I say that is, is that what Jesus has to do here is it's one thing for the crowd to pronounce judgment, and it's another thing for you to pronounce judgment. Very different things. And it's one thing to throw a stone among stones, and it's another thing to throw the death stone. And I've, I've just, I can bet around the block a few times to know that you could take a group of guys... And I'll, I'm going to just get brave and say stuff like this. It's not like the first time. You know where you're like, there's a group of three Muslim young men. And there's a group of three Muslim young men. And you're like, you want to share Jesus with them. But if you sit there and you try to sit with the three of them, they're going to get pretty angry at you. You pull one aside and it is amazing how open and listening a person can be when they don't have to save phrase, face because of the people they're with. Now, the reason I say this, please hear me on this. Jesus, knowing what is in a man, John has already told us that. Jesus is looking at them and going, which one of you individually thinks you have a right to throw the stone here? Because it'd be different if you go, okay, on the count of three, everybody throw. And to be honest, at that point, most of them would without a second thought. Can we just be honest? But when Jesus has to tell you and to look in your eyes and say, what about you personally? We're going to roll film for this later. 
Are you ready to throw that stone? And you know what he does? He stoops down again and he writes on the ground. And he's giving him a chance to slow down again. Now, is there anyone there who actually qualifies to be without sin? One, the person who's actually saying this. What's interesting is, there's another thought, and and, and I'm almost done, so bear with me. Back in the book of Numbers, there's a story in Numbers 5 about if a husband is just freaked out jealous. It doesn't normally say that about a woman, but it says it about a guy here. And he is just convinced that his girl has gone shopping somewhere else. But he can't prove it. But he's going mad because he's just convinced that's the case. So you know what he does? He goes to the, to the temple, the same place where they're standing right now. He brings his wife. And they take this water that they had drawn just like they had done the day before. They scoop up a little of the dust from the ground and they put it in the water and they mix it up. And they tell the girl to drink it. Now, sounds pretty horrible. Dusty water. Hey, but this is London. We're used to dusty water. But if nothing goes wrong, he was out of his mind and he was just being, he was lying to himself. But on the other side, if her stomach swells up and it just becomes this horrible, nasty thing, he was right. But he has to assume the consequences. If not, that he has to humble himself, ask for her forgiveness, if you will, and treat her like a decent woman. But what's interesting is that when Hosea passes judgment in chapter 4 of Hosea, he talks about the fact that the men had been so busy committing adultery with harlots that that wouldn't even work anyways anymore. Because the same guy that was jealous was the same guy that was going out whoring the night before, and now he thinks his wife is because that's the world he lives in. God's like, I'm not going to punish her for your craziness. I should be punishing you, shouldn't I? And I wonder if all of that kind of plays into this as Jesus is writing in the ground one more time and there's the dust flying as he does this. But then those who heard it, verse 9, being convicted by their conscience one by one, went out, beginning with the oldest to the last. And this tells me a couple things. I mean, one, they're going to drop their stones and leave her with the rock of ages. That's a good news. But they're going to leave their stones and they will actually pick up those stones by the end of this chapter to throw them at Jesus. So they're only dropping them temporarily. But it also tells me that just because you are convicted by your conscience for a moment does not mean you're saved or that you actually have a relationship with God. Even people who are mad against God can have moments of conscience as these guys do. These are the same guys who are still, in essence, going to be crying out for Jesus to be crucified later. Clearly, just because they have a moment of conscience does not mean that it was a transforming moment for them. But I also think there's a strange mercy in what Jesus is doing. Because when he drops down and stoops down to right, he doesn't get eye contact with any of them, so they're able to actually take the moment and know that Jesus isn't singling them out. He's giving space for the Holy Spirit to do his work. And now we have this very, very beautiful moment. But I have to say this as we bring this to it. 
When I first came to Jesus, I was 19. And I was a horrible person before that. I was so horrible. Some of you, that's not your story, and I'm not comparing. Because if we're going to be honest, if you think you are generally a decent person, that's what most people out there need to hear. Because most people don't think they're generally a horrible person like I was. They think they're actually generally a decent person. But when you first give your life to Christ, chances are you actually relate to the gal caught in adultery. Let's just be honest. You're like, man, this should be me. Look at the amazing grace of Jesus and look at how he saves me. Look at what he does. How amazing is that? But as you get older in the Lord, you stop thinking about being that person. To be honest, you're more... You're more viable of actually becoming one of the people that's quick to throw a stone. The story isn't just for the new person that realizes how horrible of a sinner they are. It's also for the person that actually gets older and realizes how horrible the sinner somebody else is. Let me say it this way. When a couple right before they're about to be married looks at each other, they have a tendency to see the strength in the other person and the weakness in their own. They're like, oh, I'm so glad you have that strength. I wish I had that strength. And then somewhere after they get married, they tend to see their own strength and the other person's weakness. In other words, before they're married, they're like, why can't I be more like you? And then once they get married, they go, why can't you be more like me? And the reason I say that is we could be like that when we start walking with the Lord. In the beginning of it all, it's just like, Jesus, I just want to be more like you. And then I watch people who are older and go, wow, I'd like to be like that. That'd be awesome. Look at how that guy loves people. And look at how that guy's praying. And look at how that person worships with their whole being. And yeah, I want to be more like that. And then somewhere you transition to this place where you're like, why can't you just be more like me? And that's when you start grabbing stones. You lose the grace and the power of that mercy. And we live in a culture that has no concept of being guilty anymore. That's the problem. I try to tell people, you need a savior. And they're like, why? I've invented my right. I've invented my wrong. And because I've invented my right and wrong, I'm not guilty of anything. I've already ruled it out. Which John tells us in 1 John, you call God a liar to do that. Jesus is left with, alone with a girl who knows just a moment ago she should have died. And he says... Woman. It's the first word he uses in verse 10. Do you notice that? Do you know the last time Jesus used this word, who he was speaking to? His mother. Woman, what does this concern me? This is the reason I say that. Woman today, I mean, unless you're from certain cultures where you're like, woman, it's not normally a term of respect. Now, there's certain cultures where there's certain words you use that for someone that's sort of a friend and a buddy and a pal and then someone you use for something like and we would have had milady in a day, or madam, that became ma'am, and now it's mum. But in those days, to call a woman mum, or mother, or woman, was to call her a term of respect. And what Jesus does to a girl who, by the way, never, he never questions her, her guilt. He never says, was this really the case? He doesn't try to disqualify it, but he still restores dignity to a person who has been busted in their sin. Could you imagine a God doing that? Because ours does. He goes, woman, where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? In Luke 12, a guy came to Jesus and said, hey, judge between me and my brother. He's not splitting my inheritance. And he said, who made me judge over you? In John chapter 3, 
Remember, after that famous verse 16, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. See, if God wanted you to go to hell, do you know all he had to do for that? Nothing. That's all he had to do. Nothing. It would have happened on its own. But for God to keep you from going there, he had to act. And Jesus comes for this purpose. But Jesus doesn't just say, okay, cool, we're going to overlook this one. Good luck. He's still going to address the sin. But consider how ironic and weird this would be. I'm going to close this because I don't want you to read That there is one person qualified because he without sin had to cast that first stone and that would have to be Jesus. So wouldn't it be the saddest scene ever? Everyone leaves and they leave their rocks and the woman is standing there in front of everyone and their accusers because the only one qualified to throw the rock would be Jesus. And then they all go, and then Jesus goes, well, now that they're gone, burn! Now, wouldn't that have been the worst scene ever? But do you realize how often we portray Jesus that way? Now, look it. I remind you, Jesus never compromised the scriptures, but he also never backed down on grace and mercy. The issue is that the law is our tutor to lead us to him. Our law says, whoa, I actually am guilty. I need to be forgiven. And here's the weird part. Denying that robs you of the forgiveness that actually could set you free. It would be like going, I don't believe there's gravity. So you know what? I'm just going to jump off this building anyways. You're like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. No matter how you think, gravity is still there. You don't have to see it. It still exists. And you can try to put yourself with wings and do all the other things. But in the end of it all, sooner or later, you're going to touch down. And you're like, well, I'll just give myself a balloon and I'll rise up. Well, you hit the atmosphere and sooner or later, it isn't going to last. The bottom line is there are laws whether we like it or not. And death is one of those laws and aging is another law. And no matter how much you nip and tuck and cut and suck and all of that, sooner or later, it's still going to win. And gravity wins in that aging thing too. The hair that was on your head starts coming out of your nose and beard. You know, it's like all of this stuff. Your pecs make their way down here and your six pack turns into just flabby everything. And the reason I say, I'm just hypothesizing. I'm sure that'll happen to me someday. Uh, The whole point is, is that no matter how much we deny it, denying it doesn't stop it from existing. And the saddest part is, is denying it just robs you from a God who really does want to forgive you. Jesus didn't come to condemn. And this woman's a prime example. Now look at Jesus is the only person who could marry two things that nobody else can seem to reconcile. The strength and the might and the fury of the law and the tenderness and the kindness and the grace of God. And you can't get that anywhere else. Everything else is about you working to try to make it better. But God did all the work here. So he looks and he says, woman, m'lady, mom, has anyone condemned you? What Jesus just made clear is rocks should have been thrown at every one of them. Let's just be honest. Now, can we be honest here? Is there, and I'm not saying this sin. Is there anyone in this room that genuinely is delusional enough to think that they don't deserve the rocks thrown at them? And yet Jesus says, you can condemn yourself. Let's face it, if Jesus wasn't there, 
this girl was dead. Has anyone condemned you? Isn't there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No, no one. And notice what she calls him in verse 11. No one, Lord. He goes, well, I'm not going to condemn you. But because I'm not going to condemn you, could you respond this way? Go and sin no more. Let this move you away from this. Don't let this write a license for you to continue, but rather let this launch you, catapult you into a whole new life. But Jesus isn't done teaching. He's just given us our object lesson. And then he turns and he says, I'm the light of the world. Now, in our last couple of minutes, consider this. You were not made for darkness. Your eyes are not made for darkness. Your toes are not made for darkness. Although, let's be honest, your toes seem at points to be designed to find furniture when it is dark and you can't find your way. Shoulders to find the walls if they're as wide as mine. But you weren't created for darkness and people do not thrive in it. They cannot function well in it. And your body needs light. Don't you find it interesting that before God created any life, he created light first? Because he told us life is not going to exist without light. But what light does is more than just give life. Light makes things clear. There's a reason why bars are, are dark. Because if, when you turn up the lights, things look very different. You see things a lot clearer. And that's not normally a very complimentary And if what you want to do is try to keep things dirty and keep things questionable, the dark sounds like your friend. But Jesus is already, first of all, we know that it tells us that the light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John told us that in John 1, 9. But in chapter 3, we read, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness. Not light. Because the dark, because the light exposed their deeds as evil. Hey, no matter what you think is good, and I know this, some of you are artists. It's like there's certain things that look kind of cool, but you want the bright enough light to be able to see how good the artwork really is. Because if it's kind of in a shaded area, some things can look a lot better until you really take a really good look at it. And what the light does is it shows, hear me on this, it shows things for what they really are. And twice the light of the world is used. Jesus is going to use it here. He'll say it later on, by the way, because he's going to do a miracle to show us that with a man born blind in chapter 9. But in Matthew, he tells us we're the light of the world. So when someone says, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus and this light that is dwelled, that God who dwells in inapproachable light lives inside of you, I understand why he's like, why would you hide that? People go, that's a dark place. Not if you're there. If you're the light of the world, how does, how does the darkness stay dark if you're the light of the world? Darkness will never overcome light. It isn't like you're shining a flashlight. Oh no, they've got that thing that sends darkness. You know, I mean, the bottom line is it tells us light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Light always wins. And where you are, it's no longer dark. As long as you're the light of the world. He goes, but don't hide it. Who in their right mind takes a leg and puts it under a bushel or puts it under their bed? Well, in that case, they don't really want the light at all. And you're like, yeah, but 
It's going to freak people out. Yeah, because they're going to actually see things for what they really are. And, but here's the great news. So is this. What Jesus did here when he shown was he showed that, that the law is merciless in and of itself, but that everybody needs mercy. From the oldest to the youngest to the woman caught in adultery, everybody needs mercy. You, me, the Pope, Billy Graham, it doesn't matter who it is, everybody needs mercy. And when Jesus showed, it wasn't that he just showed that everyone was guilty. They got that by the Holy Spirit. What, it, what Jesus showed was that everybody needs mercy. And it tells us that mercy will not be shown to those who judge without it. But mercy triumphs over judgment. God's like, I want to show you mercy. And when you walk and you are the light now, people are going to see that they're wonky and things are messed up. And God's like, yes, now. Can we cry out for mercy? Because there is a God who took your nastiness and my nastiness and your filth and my filth and he hung it on the shoulders of his son and when he died on the cross, it's not some fairy tale. It's a very simple and obvious thing and that is that all of our sin was punished. It was punished. And when it was punished, it was punished for good. He paid your bill and mine too. Buried it just like scripture promised and on the third day rose again to offer you a new life. Jesus' death at the cross was where he could say, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus' resurrection is where he says, now go and sin no more. And as we go to prayer, have you said yes to that gift? Because he's done all the work. And now he gives you the dignity of choice that look at, I've paid the bill, but will you actually accept that payment on your behalf? Because this is not a God who's looking at you to condemn you. You can do that yourself. This is a God who's looking at you to forgive you and send you new. That's the choice you need to make. But if you have said yes to Jesus and you've been brought into here today, might I just say, God has something to tell you too. And that is that can we shine instead of stone? Not at the compromise of scripture, but always at the love of a human being. Scripture tells us that we all need help, us included. We're not walking around with planks in our own eyes, searching specks in others. But what if God did that today? What if God actually lit us up and made us willing to be the lights we were called to be so that when people saw us, they were like, yeah, there's something that freaks me out about you, but there's something that intrigues me about you and I want to know what it is. You can say, it's Jesus, man, it's Jesus. And you need that forgiveness just like I do. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for giving us this time in your word. I want to thank you for this amazing story. And Jesus, how you stood against the accuser of the brethren to speak to the Father in our defense, wiping out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, nailing it to the cross. You are the perfect sacrifice, the precious blood, as if a lamb without blemish, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.19. But you're also the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4.8 tells me that. And you are the one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy, as James 4.12 tells me. And God, I just want to say thank you that you actually sent to pay for our, our crimes in our heart so that the accuser has nothing left to accuse us of but that which has already been paid. 
I just ask your forgiveness for those moments when I would be quicker to grab a stone than to shine. And I pray first for every person who said yes to you here before. That we would be honest. People are messed up. They're dirty, they're filthy, they make bad choices. Just like us. They hurt people. They hurt you. Just like us. And there are times we are indignant because our heart hurts for you. But may our heart hurt for you like that when it's us being the perpetrator. And show us how, Lord Jesus, to walk that beautiful line where there's always grace for the sinner. But it's never at the expense of your truth to declare that they do that they are sinners. And that we would take a stand on both sides. And by faith allow you to reconcile them in our own life. Because all we are are sinners saved by grace. Make us lights to this community, Lord, we pray. And we pray for the salvation of London. The people would know you for who you really are. And here at the sound of this voice, maybe you're not sure if you've ever really said yes to the gift of Jesus. Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you've done a lot of things churchy. But this is a gift offered to you and it requires your signature. It requires a yes. Or maybe you're sure you haven't ever said yes. Pray this prayer with me. If you want to say yes today, God in heaven, I am a sinner. As all men are sinners, I am one too. And that sin, in your opinion, which is the one that counts, makes me guilty before you. But you didn't want me to be that way eternally just aware of it so I have a reason to ask for your forgiveness and I believe you sent your son Jesus the Christ to die on the cross for me and as he died on the cross there my bill was paid and as he was buried so were so was my guilt and as he rose again, you give me an opportunity to have a new life, no longer under the mastery of that sin, but to go and sin no more to follow Jesus. And I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I understand this. If you really were willing to pay my bill, I would be foolish to say no. So I say yes. Have my life now. Make me that light so that others would come to know you as well. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. And you've been so kind to us. You've given us this warm room 
You've given us the opportunity to just enjoy each other. I pray you would continue to do that. We thank you again for the testimony of Hugo's. We thank you for what you've done in his life. It's a miracle, and we want to give you honor and glory for that. I thank you for those who've said yes to you today. I thank you for those who said yes to you yesterday at the wedding in the Netherlands. I thank you, God, that we can walk perfect and pure before you, washed in the gift you've given us. So let our lives reflect that now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have not much to offer you, not near what you deserve. But still I come because your cross has placed in me my worth. O Christ, my King, of sympathy whose wounds secure my peace your grace extends to call me friend your mercy sets me free and I know I'm weak I know I'm unworthy to call upon your name Because of grace, because of your mercy I stand here unashamed I can't explain this kind of love I'm humbled and amazed That you come down from heaven's height To greet me face to face And I know I'm weak I know I'm unworthy to call on your name but because of grace because of your mercy I stand here unashamed and I know I'm weak I know I'm unworthy to call upon your name But because of grace, because of your mercy, I still hear on the shame. Here I am at your feet, in my brokenness complete. Here I am. At your feet In my brokenness Complete Here I am 
Thank you for the opportunity today to worship you another day. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us lights to each other and to the world, the otherwise dark world out there. Lord, I pray, build this family, we pray, so we would all know we have a home, Lord, and a place where we can encourage each other to be all out for you. Jesus, in your name.